All right, welcome everyone. Let me uh, just mention a few things that are coming up, and then I'll tell you where we've been in this series, the title of which is on the screen. You've got questions, God has answers, and that's on the front cover of your notes as well. But by way of announcement, we have a a few things coming up that I want you all to be aware of. In just a few weeks, uh, just uh, two weeks from today, we have our next baptism. That's on the 11th. November the 11th, and if you've never been baptized, and what that means is, according to the Bible, that you have been immersed in water. So you have been immersed in water to symbolize the death and the burial and the resurrection of Christ. So if you were a baby and you were sprinkled or had water poured on you, uh, that's often called baptism. It's not what baptism is in the Bible. So if you were to get baptized, you wouldn't be getting rebaptized. You'd actually be getting baptized for the first time. So it's not then a rejection of your baptism, which is a hang-up that many people have. Understandably, it's not a, a rejection of your baptism. Rather, it's being baptized the way the Bible talks about it and for the reason that the Bible talks about it. So we only got two weeks. If you want to be considered for that, we've got a one-page application that you can pick up at the desk that's out in the lobby and fill that out, give that to them, they'll get it to me, I'll contact you, and then we'll go from there. So baptism, November the 11th. And then on uh, November the 25th, during this hour, and for three weeks thereafter, four weeks total, starting November 25th, we have our periodic newcomers orientation. That's a class for four weeks during the second hour on Sundays that I lead. We give you a booklet of material that tells you about our church and what we believe why we do things the way we do, some of our goals for the future. We can answer any questions you might have about our church. We encourage everybody who's new to our church to take that and then to take it with an eye toward whether or not this is the place God would have you unite so that you can serve and grow in the uh, in the future. <clears throat> no obligation after you take that. We don't hassle you after you take it. Uh, the decision then is yours, but we give you the information, and I encourage you to get the information. That starts November 25th. December the 1st is the next brunch at our house, Newcomer's Brunch. We would love to have you if you've never been to one of our brunches. We need to know, though, who all's coming so that we can plan for food purposes. Let the folks at the Information Center desk know, and they'll put your name on the list for the December 1st brunch at, at our house. All right, this series is You've Got Questions and God Has Answers. It's eight weeks total, and today is week number five. So in the prior four weeks, we have answered the questions, how do we know God exists? Is the Bible consistent with science? Is the Bible reliable? Last week, why does God allow suffering? And then in the next three weeks, we're going to answer, can anyone know for sure he's going to heaven? Why are there so many hypocrites in the church? Isn't the church just a man-made institution? Today, the question we're seeking to answer is, Is Jesus the only way to God? Is Jesus the only way to God? Now, at least one famous person has answered that in the negative. Is Jesus the only way to God? This person says no. And I've got a short, uh, not I think just two-minute video uh, for that.
One of the mistakes that human beings make is believing that there is only one way to live That's and right. that we don't accept that there are diverse ways of being in the world, that there are millions of ways to be a then human being and, and many ways, no, but many paths right. to what you call God. That and her path crazy. might be something else and when she gets there she might call it the light. But her loving and her kindness and her generosity brings her, if it brings her to the same point that it brings you, it doesn't matter whether she called it God along the way or not. And I guess the danger that could be on that, I mean, it, it sounds great on the onset, but if you really look at both sides, I there couldn't possibly be just one way. What, what about Jesus? What about Jesus? So Oprah says that Jesus could not possibly be the only way. And one of the reasons that Jesus could not possibly be the only way is because someone might be living in some remote part of the planet and never heard of the name Jesus. So that's what Oprah says uh, about this matter. Take a look at page one of your notes. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So from the outset, in answering this question, is Jesus the only way to God? The first thing that everyone here and everyone is going to have to deal with is this. You can believe Oprah or you can believe Jesus, but you can't believe both. Both cannot be right because the nature of truth is such that opposite statements cannot both be true at the same time and in the same relationship. What Oprah said and what many people believe is openly and directly contradictory to what Jesus said in John 14, 6, and the Bible teaches throughout. But our culture sees truth as subjective and therefore relative. Top of page one, Jesus says, I'm the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. But as I say there, this runs counter to our culture's view of truth of subjective rather than objective. That is, it's widely believed that truth is personal, and so what is true for you may not be true for others. Alan Bloom, in his book, The Closing of the American Mind, writes, One thing a professor can absolutely be certain of is that almost every student entering the university believes or says he or she believes that truth is relative. If this belief is put to the test, one can count on the student's reaction. They will be uncomprehending. I read that book when it came out in the, in the mid-80s, and I remember that just after that, I probably should have quoted it uh, here, but Bloom says, they will be uncomprehending as if you are challenging the proposition that 2 plus 2 equals 4, which is ironic because the students are saying that truth is relative, 
And they will look at you like you're challenging something that's absolutely true, like 2 plus 2 equals 4. And he goes on to explain their mindset. Relativism is necessary to openness. And this is the virtue, really the only virtue, which all primary education for more than 50 years has dedicated itself to inculcating. Openness is the real insight of our time. The true believer is the real danger. The point is not to correct the mistakes and really be right. Rather, it's not to think you're right at all. Within that mindset, is narrow-minded. it's narrow-minded then to claim that Jesus is the only way to God. So both Oprah and, and Jesus cannot be right. And I want you to note an assumption in what Oprah said. And it's the assumption that I've heard many people make on this uh, issue with regard to whether or not Jesus is the only way to God. You heard Oprah say that can't possibly be true because uh, you have people on the other side of the planet who've never heard the, the name of Jesus, and I've heard that countless times from people. So the assumption is, is this, that people just happen to live where they live. It just happens that someone lives on the other side of the planet and therefore have not, has not heard the name of Jesus. So I would encourage you to think about that a little bit more. Is there anybody who just happens to live where they are? Well, the Bible doesn't teach that. If you believe in the God who created the world and the way the Bible presents this God who created the world, who also sustains his world, this God actually orders the steps of people such that where we're born is no accident. So one of the assumptions is that there are people who are getting ripped off. There are people who live in some part of the planet who might otherwise want to follow Jesus, but they never had an opportunity to hear his name. How are you going to tell them that you're only going to be able to go to heaven if you believe in Jesus? But the Bible teaches there is no such thing. There is no such thing as any person who in their natural state wants to hear about Jesus. Did you know that? I'm quoting now Romans chapter 3. There is no one who seeks God, not even one. So we have this idea in our mind that there are these people out there who are groping for God and would love to follow Jesus if only they had the opportunity to hear his name. And because they're on some other remote part of the earth, they didn't get to hear his name. Therefore, how could it possibly be? But the first false assumption is that there are people who are groping like that. There is no one who seeks God, says the Bible. And in our sinful nature with which all of us are born and that person in that remote part of the earth is born There is no one who seeks God. But even theoretically, let's say there is somebody who seeks God. Is the God who created the world powerful enough to get the name of Jesus to that person? So it's wrong on a number of fronts. There are a couple of false assumptions that go into it. There are people who are seeking God and therefore they're just sort of ripped off because of where they wound up being born as if where they were born is some kind of accident unknown to God. But even if, in theory, there were people who were seeking God, the question then is, is God such that he is powerful enough to get the message of Jesus to that person? And we would answer that as yes. The Bible teaches that people don't just happen to be born where they're born. Most of us, if not all of us, were born in the U.S. of A. Most of us thank God for that. But it's not by happenstance. It's not any merit of our own. 
that we were born in the greatest nation on earth. I think I can say that without controversy. And I thank God for that. It's in his grace. He didn't know that to me. He doesn't know it to anybody else. And further, he doesn't know the name of, owe the name of Jesus to anyone either. Because we all come into this world in rebellion against God. So in Oprah's statement, in the statement many people make, very much like that, there are a number of false assumptions that are contrary to teachings about God in the Bible. People are, don't just happen to be born where they were born. The Bible says things like this. Proverbs 16.33, the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. In other words, there's no such thing as chance. God controls everything. Dominion belongs to the Lord and he rules over the nations. Even on an individual and personal level, the Bible says your, your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. The Bible says in Proverbs 20 and verse 24, a person's steps are ordered or directed by the Lord. Acts chapter 17, Acts chapter 17 and verse 26 says, I'm quoting, he determined the times before appointed and the exact places where they should live. God did that. It's not just somebody happens to be. You don't just happen to be here and nobody else happens to be there. False assumptions that go into into that claim. Now, we're going to see later in your notes that the Bible teaches that people, everyone, has been given information about God anyway. Even if they do live in the remotest part of the earth, they've been given information about God. We'll see what they do with that information according to the Bible. Middle of page one, then. Are the exclusive claims of Christ too narrow? Many will say, it doesn't bother me if others believe in Christ as long as they don't tell me and everybody else that we have to do that too. Even if I believe that Christ is true for me, that does not mean he has to be true for the rest of the world. That approach works when you're speaking of your own individual feelings and opinions, but not when dealing with facts. And it is a fact that Jesus claimed to be the only way. In the words of C.S. Lewis, then, given the audacious claims that Jesus made, here are your options, lunatic, liar, or Lord. He was he was just, and, and I say this respectfully, but to say what Jesus said, you would have to be out of your mind if it were not actually true. And in fact, the Gospels teach us that many people thought he was out of his mind. So he would have to be a lunatic or he would just have to be completely evil and deceptive to make these claims about who he is, his ability to forgive sin, that he's coming again, that he's preparing a place. He would have to be completely deceptive, a liar, or in fact, he's the Lord. Those friends are your options. It can't be you can have Jesus and you can have somebody else and they're both equal and equal ways to get to God. We'll see that in a bit. So sometimes people will say under this issue of are the exclusive claims of Christ too narrow? Now we're going to just go through a number of claims that people will make. One of those is this. Oprah made it. Somebody is living out there. They're in this remote part of the earth and they're and they're living a good life the way Jesus said to. They're sincerely pursuing good. How can you say that that person's not going to go to heaven? So is sincerity enough? 
although it's an admirable quality to sincerely follow something that's wrong, is simply this, friends. It's to be sincerely wrong. Sincerity does not change reality. David DeWitt illustrates. He says, during my undergraduate days at Michigan State, we had an unusual snowstorm. Normally, Michigan snow is rather damp and forms solid snow drifts that will pretty well hold you up when you jump onto them. One particular storm, however, lasted for three days and left very dry, powdery snow almost up to the second-story windows of some dorms. Lots of kids thought it'd be great to jump into that huge snow drift from the third or fourth floors, having all the confidence in the world that it would hold them up, and it didn't. We had students in nearly every class with broken legs from jumping out windows. One guy on our floor who hurt his leg in basketball even wore a sign around his neck, I did not jump into the snow. And he says here, those kids were sincere. They had so much conviction. The snow would hold them up. They jumped out of the window. That's sincere faith. They not only believed it, they acted on it. The only problem is they were wrong. The same thing is true in religion. No matter how many people believe it, and regardless of how sincere they are, if they are wrong, the results can be disastrous. So I'm encouraging you to lose the sincerity idea. That if you're sincere, that that somehow is going to make a difference in the reality of your relationship with God. But what is the difference between what about other religions? In a sense, nearly all founders of the major world religions claim to be ways or have ways to get to God. But Jesus claimed to be God. Many Christians find it difficult to believe that a man, Jesus, could become God, but that's actually not what happened. The Bible teaches that God became man in the form of Jesus of Nazareth, not the other way around. So do we, do we understand that this is what Christianity claims? This is what Jesus claimed? That he had an eternal existence prior to his birth in Bethlehem? That his birth that we celebrate at Christmas in Bethlehem 2,000 years ago was not the beginning of his existence, but rather was the beginning of his mission. And it was God who came to earth and God became man without ceasing to be God. He became what theologians call the God-man. One unique person with two natures, God and man. The man, the God-man Christ, Christ Jesus. So that's what the Bible claims about Jesus. Now, people will sometimes say, but you know, I mean, I know Christianity says that about Jesus, you know, that he's God, but Jesus never claimed to be God. That's what, that's what people will say. Well, you've got, for example, this encounter with Jesus and his detractors, uh, the religious leaders of his day. Jesus was threatening them personally by the truth that he was speaking about who he was and what he had come to do. And so at every turn, they opposed him. He was threatening them personally. He was threatening their positions. So they opposed him. And let me read this passage to you from John chapter 8. And beginning in verse 48, John eight forty-eight. The Jews answered him, these are the religious leaders, aren't we right in saying that you're demon-possessed? What do you expect Jesus to say that, by the way? But he says, I'm not possessed by a demon, but I honor my Father and you dishonor me. I'm not seeking glory for myself, but there is one who seeks it and he is the judge. I tell you the truth, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. At this 
the Jewish religious leaders exclaimed, now we know that you are demon possessed. Abraham died. So Jesus says you'll never see death. But they say, wait a minute, Abraham died, and so did the prophets. And you say, if anyone keeps your word, you will never taste death. You will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham? He died, and so did the prophets. Who do you think you are? I sense an opportunity here from Jesus. for Jesus. And Jesus replied, if I glorify myself, my glory means nothing. My father, whom you claim as your God, is the one who glorifies me. Though you do not know him, I know him. If I said I did not, I would be a liar like you. Yikes. But I do know him and keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it and was glad. And they say this to Jesus. You are not yet 50 years old and you have seen Abraham? And Jesus says, I tell you the truth. Before Abraham was born... I am. Now, what does that mean? Before Abraham was born, I am. Do those two words mean it, uh, remind you of anything? In Exodus chapter 3 in your Bible, God appears to Moses. And he says, Moses, I want you to go to Egypt and you tell Pharaoh to let my people go. And Moses says, who am I to say has sent me? And God says, I am that I am. You tell Pharaoh that I am has sent you. I am the self-existent one, the one who has existed for all time. And Jesus knows these religious leaders know that. And so he says, before Abraham was born, I am. And then the Bible says this, at this they picked up stones to stone him. Do you know why they want to kill him? Because he's committed, in their minds, blasphemy. Claiming to be God. It is false that Jesus did not claim to be God. He, in fact, did. And we're going to see some other verses that tell us very clearly that Jesus is God. Middle of page two. The reason he took on humanity was so he could die in the place of Muhammad and Buddha and you and me. Jesus said that he came to give his life a ransom. The Greek word literally means as a substitute for many. All right, but aren't Christians just too narrow-minded? People are often quick to recognize that Christianity is intolerant of other beliefs. That's true, but the reason is that Christianity emphasizes objective truth. That is, it's based on real history, real people, places, and events. It's basically news, not views. So it's either true or it's not. Truth is narrow by definition. Tolerance in people's personal opinions is a virtue. But tolerance when dealing with facts is ridiculous. As the saying goes, I think it was Daniel Patrick Moynihan who said this, everyone's entitled to his own opinion, but not his own facts. So we believe, as Christians in pluralism, everyone's entitled to espouse their own view. But we don't do what the culture does, allow pluralism to then devolve into relativism. Because everyone's allowed to state their own view, then all views are therefore equally valid. That's not true. So is it reasonable to say that's okay for you, but it's not for me? Anything that's true objectively and universally cannot be applied only privately. If it's true, it's true for everybody. If it's not, it's not true for anybody. 
Again, David DeWitt illustrates that. I shall always remember a large, loud, elderly lady math teacher I once had. I can still hear her her bellowing. Remember, DeWitt, if you don't come up with the same answer I have, either you're wrong or I'm wrong, but we can't both be right. If Jesus said that he's the only way to God and Muhammad or anybody else said that there is some other way to God, then either Jesus is wrong or Muhammad is wrong, but they cannot both. They cannot both be right. As we saw at the beginning, Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. Before that, he said, I and the Father are one. He went on to say, he who has seen me has seen the Father. Either he's the only way to God the Father or he is not. If he is, then that's true for you and me as well as everybody else, no matter where they live or what they believe. If he's not, it's no more true for me than for anybody else, no matter how much I believe it. So you see, when Jesus makes this exclusive claim that I am God and no one comes to the Father except through me, when he makes that kind of claim, then it does away with that might be true for you but not for me. It can't be that. But could Jesus be just one of many ways to God? To claim Jesus is just one of many ways to say the opposite of what he said. If that were true, he'd be wrong. And if his basic message is wrong, then he's not a reliable way to anything. His claim to be the only way was not just a sidelight. It was the heart of his whole message. He was the only way because he was God, the creator of the universe. Now, here's some of these other passages that say that Jesus teaches that Jesus is God. John chapter one, in the beginning was the word. Notice that that word is capitalized and you'll see why in a moment. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. All right. So whoever the word is, the word was God. You see that? And the word was with God. So this is John writing this in the Gospel of John. And he is writing about God, but he is also writing about God the Father and God the Son. And that's why then he says he was God and he was with God, both. God the Father and God the Son, both God. One God in three persons. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And notice where John starts. In the beginning. And then he says he was with God in the beginning. Now, does that phrase remind you of anything? The Bible starts with that phrase. You remember that? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So here John, again, is using language that his readers would recognize at the very beginning of the Bible. In the beginning. So in the beginning, when everything was created, there was this one called the Word. And the Word was with God the Father, and the Word himself was God as well. And it goes on to say, Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. That sounds like a kind of tortured way, kind of tortured language to say that. But here's why John is doing that. It's to eliminate any possibility that Jesus is a created being. Now, there are people who teach that. Jehovah's Witnesses teach that Jesus is a created being. But here, John is eliminating that possibility. In the beginning, he already was. And nothing was created apart from him. 
So who is this one that was God and was with God in the beginning and created all things? Who is this? It goes on to say, the word became flesh. This one became humanity. And he made his dwelling among us and we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father, full of grace and truth. That's John chapter one, verses one through three. And you should add there verse 14, verse 14. And then you have Colossians chapter one. In him were all things created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. That passage is talking about none other than Jesus. So, friends, if there is any other way, then his basic message is wrong, and he is not one way to God. He's not even a way to God, because he's got it completely wrong. But what about people who have never heard? And that's what we have next and over the next few pages. What about people who have never heard of Jesus? The following conversation frames the issues. Nancy, want to go to a Bible study with me? Pam asked. I don't think I want to go, Nancy answered. I don't think the Bible is very fair. What makes you say that? Because there are people all over the world who never heard of the Bible, and I don't think any God who would send them all to hell is very fair. Well, the Bible says God is fair, Pam answered, dealing the exact number of potato chips in each of the five plates, thus averting a war at the table when their kids get together. If he's fair, then he'll let everybody into heaven, Nancy persisted. I don't know if that's the most fair thing to do or not, but if it is, that's what he'll do. But don't you think everybody needs to believe in Jesus? Yes, I do, Pam admitted. Then what about those people who live their whole lives completely isolated from Christianity? Well... They can see the wonders of God in nature, Pam suggested, and they have a conscience that tells them there's a right and wrong. It seems that they'd want to know what sort of God was behind all of that. Even if isolated people wanted to find God, I don't see how they could do it, she said as she poured Pam a glass of iced tea. Pam answered, I think God could find some way to tell people about Jesus if they really wanted to find the way to God. How do you know they're not already worshiping Jesus? Maybe they're just calling him a different name. It's not the English name Jesus that's important. It's the whole person. Nobody else I've ever heard of said what Jesus did. He claimed to be God the Son and the only way to God the Father. Besides, his basic message was different from anybody I've ever heard of. Why does it just have to be Jesus? Couldn't God let people who have never heard of Jesus into heaven another way? I mean, God's all-powerful, right? Sure. Well, then, he must be powerful enough to let them in some other way than telling them about Jesus. Yes, but if he's powerful enough to tell them about himself without Jesus, then isn't he also powerful enough to bring them to himself through Jesus? And what about babies and insane people who don't have the ability to decide to believe in Jesus? I really don't know, but I think the Bible says somewhere they're going to heaven automatically. Are the people who live before Jesus going to be sent to hell just because they had the misfortune of being born too soon? No, they have the same chance as the rest of us. How do you figure that? Because the God of the Old Testament hasn't changed, and he told them the Messiah would come to pay for their sins. They had just as much opportunity to believe in Jesus looking forward to his coming as we do looking back at it. That conversation, as I say, frames. It doesn't answer all the issues. It frames the issues, though. Now let's step through some of the issues that came up in that conversation. 
At the heart of this discussion is the question, what is God like? Many people honestly are not sure they want to give their lives to a God who's so mean and uncaring that he sends people to hell just because they never heard of it. Here were some of the things that were discussed in that conversation. How can we say God's fair if he sends to hell people who have never heard of him? Whatever God does is going to be fair. But many people feel if that were true, then he'd let everybody into heaven, or at least all the good people. The problem is the Bible says there is no one who does good, not even one. So it would violate God's justice, that is. It would be unfair for God to indiscriminately let everybody into heaven. Now, do you just let me stop there? Do you all follow that then? See, if God is just, and and he is, and if he must do justice, then he cannot overlook sin. And the Bible says there is no one who is good. So another myth that many people believe is there are these good people out there who would love to follow Jesus but just didn't get the chance, and the Bible doesn't teach that. Now, when I say God can't do that, I'm saying that he, there, he's limited in some aspects of what he can do, limited by his own internal character, not limited by anything external to him, not limited by anyone or anything, only limited by who he is. He's completely holy. He's completely just. Therefore, he cannot do that. So many people think, why don't you just do kind of, I don't know, what was, what was that word, Ali Ali income free or something? When you were playing hide and seek, you know, you're all free. Everybody let off the hook. Maybe God could just yell that out. But his justice, because of who he is, won't won't allow that. But for sake of discussion, bottom of page four, if that is fair, then that is what he would do. The Bible rhetorically asks, shall not the judge of all the earth deal justly? In other words, the God who judges the whole earth will be just and fair to each individual. Romans chapter 2 says this, For there is no partiality with God. Whatever God does about those who have never heard of Jesus Christ will be the most fair thing to do. But what about people who have been completely isolated from Christianity? How can they respond? Every person, no matter where they are, has at least two sources of information about God. Nature is one. As we observe the universe around us, we see design and beauty far beyond anything we or even nature itself could produce. Everyone has the same natural wonders around him and they point to a superior being beyond man whom everyone should choose to seek. So if you lived, for example, as an illustration in someone's house for a while, you would know they existed even if you didn't meet them. Pictures, the artifacts, the designs you would find around the house would tell you of their existence as a distinct person with a definite personality. You'd have enough information to decide to try to find them if you wanted. The Apostle Paul put it this way in Scripture. Since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. So you see nobody got ripped off? Everybody has information about God, but nobody seeks God? We're going to see what they do with that information in in a bit, but this leaves then everyone without excuse before God. But nature is not our only source of information about God. Another one is ourselves, our conscience. We have the idea of a standard of goodness beyond what we're able to keep. Conscience tells us about sin, the difference between the way we live and the way we ought to. Even those who, who outwardly reject God cannot escape their inner knowledge of a goodness beyond what they're able to keep. Speaking of those who have never heard, the Bible says they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience, bearing witness and their thought alternatively, alternately accusing or else defending them. 
Well, how could someone in an isolated area know about Jesus, even if they wanted to? As we've seen, God has given all people information to make them responsible to seek, and yet people in their sinful nature reject that. The Bible says this, quote, they suppress the truth. In the Bible, God has made himself known to many people who, humanly speaking, would have had no way to know truth beyond nature and conscience. For instance, God called Abraham out of paganism. And he sent Peter to a God-fearer named Cornelius to tell him about Jesus. So Pam was right. God is powerful enough to bring people to himself through Jesus. If God so chooses to do that in his mercy and his grace, he can send someone and circumstances to any far-flung place on the earth. And in fact, he does that very thing. But couldn't people be worshiping Jesus just by a different name? No other religion following the teachings of any other leader declares a message anywhere near that of Jesus. On the surface, that might, they may appear to be the same. Non-Christian religions have commandments, morals, and rules to live by, and they accept some sort of supernatural being and promote the betterment of man. But while other leaders claim to be prophets of God or one of many gods, Jesus claimed to be God, the only God, the creator of the universe. All non-Christian religions teach a work work system of reaching God or becoming better. Jesus taught that no works will get one to God. Faith alone accomplishes that. Most religions point primarily to the betterment of man. Jesus pointed primarily to the glory of God. The religions of man may claim to be a way or a better way, but they generally do not declare themselves to be the only way. Jesus asserted that he was the only way and that there was absolutely no other way. On that point about religions pointing upward by your works, think of it this way. Every religion represents, think of it representing a ladder. And there's God up here and there's us down here. And the ladder is how we get to God. And for every other religion except biblical Christianity, the gospel, the climbing of the ladder goes from the bottom up. You do the work and you climb the rungs of the ladder. And if you do that well enough, then you will have a relationship with God. It is the gospel, the good news of God's grace, that the direction of the climbing goes the other way. It's God coming to us because we can't work our way to him. Now, friends, that's an absolutely profound difference between Christianity and everything else. So that next paragraph says the name of Jesus is significant. That is what that name represents, who he is and all that he did. Not just the five letters, J-E-S-U-S, but all that's represented by that name. Middle of page six. Couldn't those who have never heard of Jesus be led into heaven some other way? If God's completely powerful, then then could he not reveal himself to those isolated by some way other than telling them, about the Jesus of the Bible. Sure, he could theoretically do anything he likes. But we might also ask, since God is powerful enough to reveal himself some other way than how he said he would, then is he not also powerful enough to do it the way he said he would? That next paragraph. Then there's the additional problem of this, of how people coming to God any other way would have their sins forgiven. Since everybody is a sinner and therefore unable to have a relationship with God, since Jesus Christ is God's only provision for man's sin, there's apparently no other way for people to get to God. So even if God decided to just sort of shout out some other name or something like that, you still got the problem of forgiveness of sin. And how's that going to happen? 
Who's going to pay for your sin? There's no human being that can do that because all human beings that come through into this world through the natural process come into the world with a sin nature. Save one human being, except one human being. And God interrupted the natural process to bring him to this earth through the virgin conception and birth. So apart from that, apart from Jesus, there's no way for people to have their sins forgiven. He's the one who paid for it on the cross and the only one who could because he's the only one qualified because he is God come as man. Bottom of page six. What about babies and insane people? Biblical evidence indicates that people unable consciously to choose Christ are not held accountable for rejecting him. And we give the story there of Second Samuel 12 and verse 23 of David and his son who, who died in infancy. Remember that he, David, King David, committed sin. He committed sin uh, in an adulterous liaison with uh, Bathsheba. The product of that, uh, that dalliance was a child who died uh, in infancy. And David makes the statement there that that... Uh, he cannot come to me, but I can go to him. And in the context of that, uh, I take it to mean that David plans on seeing him in heaven someday. And we have a book in our resource center, Safe in the Arms of Jesus, by John MacArthur that deals with, with that issue and some others. But you can read that. Look at page 7. The last question that's brought up in Pam and Nancy's conversation, what about people who lived before Christ? God's plan to restore man to a relationship with himself has never changed. The message of salvation in the first part of your Bible, the Old Testament, is the same as in the New. Man is described as a sinner separated from God in Isaiah, that's in the first part of your Bible, and in need of a redeemer in Job, also in the first part of your Bible. The only way people could get to God was by grace, says the book of Psalms in the Old Testament, through faith, Genesis, the first book of your Bible, and not by their own works, says Isaiah. The object of their faith was the personal Messiah, who would be God himself when he would come to earth as a baby. They needed to have faith in the Messiah who would come, just as we need to have faith in the Messiah who did come. The details of his coming were made known, revealed Progressively, each age was given more details as the Bible unfolded over time. Each age was given more details. And even we who are living today do not see it as clearly as we will when Jesus returns to earth. But the essential message has remained unchanged since God first revealed the need of sacrifice to the very first man, Adam, and his sons, Cain and Abel. And he promised in the very third chapter of the Bible, one who would come to accomplish redemption. So, is Jesus really the only way to God? Yeah. He's really the only way to God, or he's not someone worthy of emulation. He's not worthy of someone to follow. He's not worthy of your life because he was either deceived, he was deceptive, Or, in fact, he is the Lord that he claimed to be. On the back of your notes, I remind you of those things that I mentioned at the beginning. Our baptism in two weeks, the newcomer's orientation, 
and sign up for the brunch that's at our house on Saturday the 1st. Let's pray and we'll be dismissed. Our Father, thank you for truth that is objective and absolute because it comes from you. Thank you for making us in your image so that we have the ability to process truth, to receive the communication that you give to your creatures, that we can read what you have said, that we can hear what you have, what you have said. We thank you that because you're a God of truth, you do not contradict. And when you make absolute claims about who you are and what you do, uh, those cannot be thwarted and they cannot be contradicted. Help us then, though we swim in an ocean of subjectivism and relativism in our culture today, help us to be people of truth. Help us to speak the truth in love. Help us to be, as our Savior was and is, full of grace and truth. But, Father, help us to uphold truth in a day that denies it. And as a result of upholding truth, help us to have the courage And frankly, the love for others to uphold Jesus as the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through him. Go with us this week. Give us opportunities to proclaim that message. Grant fruit for our labors, we ask. Bring us back together next Lord's Day. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.